Hey guys, it's me, Sophia Amoruso, here from the Girl Boss HQ. We have a great guest coming up today, Arlen Hamilton of Backstage Capital. We'll be here to chat about her journey to become a venture capitalist and how you can pitch your idea to her. But first, I want to talk just a little bit about my favorite PJs, Lunia. Lunia. Okay, Lunia. Lunia has really been a lifesaver for me. I. I looked everywhere for pajamas and everything was like really stiff, kind of like suits basically that like, I don't even know, like I don't even, wouldn't even like get around my butt Mm -hmm. and just nothing that stretches, nothing that's soft. And they have these still sexy, but also very practical washable silk pajamas. Mm -hmm. And since having washable silk, I mean, you know, I didn't really ever wash my like nice PJs and the washable silk just allows you to feel like sexy mm-hmm. and clean <laughs> I guess, at the same time. And Lunia was designed with you in mind from flat seams to silhouettes that move with your body to pockets. They're really a modern take on sleepwear. And whether you're a hot sleeper, cold sleeper, or victim of midnight nip slips mm. and wake me up wedgies, Ooh. each Lunia piece works together to meet your sleep needs. So find out why Fast Company is raving about Lunia and get 15% off your first purchase when you go to lunia.co and enter promo code GIRLBOSS. That's L-U-N-Y-A dot co. Enter promo code GIRLBOSS for 15% off your first purchase. Lunia, sleepwear for the modern woman. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Arlen Hamilton is the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital, a fund that is dedicated to minimizing funding disparities in tech by investing in high potential founders who are of color, women, and or LGBTQ. I think that a lot of investors that have a ton of money right now are missing a lot of people because they don't have that right access to them. And just like those people may not have the access to the country club, even more importantly, the investors don't have access to the barbecue. Arlen built her venture capital fund from the ground up while homeless. She started from scratch in 2015. I broke in. I invited myself. I mean, honestly, it was just really several years of chipping away at the path to get there. So it's it's not an easy packaged story. And to date, Backstage has invested nearly $5 million into over 100 startup companies led by underestimated founders. And in early May of this year, Backstage announced that they had raised an additional $36 million fund to exclusively boost black female founders, which Arlen calls her It's About Damn Time Fund. Arlen entered the venture capital world from an unconventional path. Before she worked in VC, she started her career in the music industry. My very first concert, I was 13 years old and I saw Janet Jackson in the front row through a series of wonderful events. It changed my life. Whatever 
that feeling was looking back at that audience that night, I knew that I needed to be around that energy as much as possible. And these days, when she's not raising millions to fund deserving founders, she still works in music, serving as a tour manager to Atlantic Records recording artist Janine. Today, Arlen is here to share her path from being homeless to a venture capitalist, how you can fund your company, and how to switch career paths. We'll get to our chat with Arlen in just a moment. But first, Maggie and I are going to chat all about what's going on here at the Girl Boss offices. What's up, Maggie? Oh, boy. We got a lot going on. So we have a great piece on Mm girlboss.com about how to work from home without turning into a ball of stress. Mm -hmm. Not turning into a ball of stress is hard enough, but when you don't actually exit your home, Mm -hmm. uh, it can be uh, pretty bad because then there's no such thing as a personal life. And since we work from home on Fridays here at Girl Boss, which is awesome, we've been able to use these tricks and apply them into our work from home day. So what are some of the tips that we're offering to... Uh, work from home productively, efficiently, and without becoming a total monster who doesn't wash her face. Right. So I think it's also super different when you freelance versus working from home once a week or so. When you freelance, I think the, the tips are very different. You know, you want to get ready in the morning as if you're going to work, kind of finding little routines where you can, whether it's brushing your teeth. I mean, everybody should be brushing their teeth. No no judgment, though. And then making a cup of coffee at home, sitting in your own chair, grabbing your computer, just having those little small acts of repetition to help you get into your workflow. And then also transition from sleep mode to then work mode in the same place. So it's taking off the PJs, getting out of the bed. um, Whereas, take off your PJs, guys. Yep, those Lunya PJs. I would say make a list too. I mean, always making a list is important, but your your day, um, what you need to get accomplished that day is really important. There are also productivity apps and websites, as there is everything nowadays. It's called Toggle, and it helps you control your schedule and also find. Um, how productive you are. So it's like if you're browsing the web and 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 d- d- like moving away from the actual work that needs to be done, it lets you know. And also, if you are that person that gets distracted and doesn't want it to be radio silent, then there's also always coffee shops in library, a library or yeah. Sometimes a getting in the house space. is really you know it can be kind of distracting. But mm-hmm. get some headphones, get out of the house. I mean, I became a total work monster at the beginning of Nasty Gal Hmm. and I didn't ever get out of the bathrobe you know I wrote in the book that my boyfriend called it the sad bunny because it was this giant pink terry cloth bathrobe I didn't even I mean why wash your face Mm -hmm. like I'm not going anywhere I would go to Starbucks like practically oh no no I used to go in vintage clothing that I pulled off a hanger that still had a goodwill tag literally coming off like the top (laughs) of the shoulder like Next to my face that yep. said like four ninety nine on it. Like Nothing. I once caught myself at a hamburger place called Burger Road that I used to go Just every day burger. with like a yeah Goodwill sweater with a four ninety nine price tag. That's the and dream. I was like wow, wow. I'm I'm in my twenties. Mm-hmm. What is this? <laughs> what do you do now? Well, when you're I wear my home. own clothes. I don't wear the inventory. <laughs> and yeah, when I work from home, I get up. I usually wash my face. Mm-hmm. I mean, even on work from home days, you know, we have Fridays to work from home here at. 
girl boss, I end up going and taking meetings and I go work mm-hmm. at Neuhaus, which is a co-working space. Mm-hmm. But when I am home, oh God, it's really hard to force yourself to get up. I know. Like I don't get out of my chair. When you get in the zone. Yeah. And get so much done. I'm so in the zone. But like, I don't know, I'll stop and play with my dogs mm-hmm. for a little bit and just remember that I'm not just like a brain with fingers that mm-hmm. type, but like a human that should touch, touch mm-hmm. soft things and take time to do things other than think and work and solve problems and answer questions and mm-hmm. put out fires. So, uh, yeah, cool. I recommend I'm... dogs if you're working from home. Ooh, or cats. Yeah, dogs know. or cats, hamsters, bunnies, birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Any of the above. If our listeners want to learn more, where can they do it, Maggie? Mm-hmm. They can check girlboss.com and then hit that search bar and type in how to work from home and you'll find that little article. Now get ready to hear from venture capitalist Arlen Hamilton. Where did you grow up? I grew up grew up in Dallas, Texas. Okay. I was born in Jackson, Mississippi. And you grew up religious. Mm. <laughs> I grew that... up in a religion. <laughs> in a religion. Yeah. But you weren't really. I like... was not really. That was part of the problem. Well, how does not being a religious person growing up in a religion, how, does, how do you feel like that affected your development or who you are today? Um, well... Yeah, so I only recently started talking more about it because of because of uh, this documentary. But it wasn't fun, you know. I, I wasn't given a choice, and I think that was that was part that sucked. Um, it I was a Jehovah's Witness, and my mom was a Jehovah's Witness, and she was brought into it in her thirties, which would have been my you know, I was like four or five, and so I just there was a lot that I had to. Uh, I got some out of it. I think I got like. I have to admit that I got, like, um, I was able to read really early because they forced me to learn how to read the Bible mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was, like, six. <laughs> so I was, like, able to read uh, very at a very high level uh, early on, and I think that that's definitely helped me along the way. It hasn't helped me speak or think very well, but anyway. But mostly it was, you know, growing up in a in a situation where you didn't have that you didn't have control and I had to go door to door you know every weekend where my friends from school saw me you know and that wasn't fun Mm -hmm. and I had to be had to go out of the room whenever there was some holiday at school so yeah holidays yeah I would get a separate room um I even back then though even as a child I was also aware of like the dignity of of that being what our family was in and that no one else had the right to sort of make fun of it or to challenge it in a way that was like derogatory. Did you so, learn that from your fa- parents or is that always been I don't kind know of where that natural... came from. I don't know where that came from. Like I was telling people what to do very early and I don't uh, know if that was taught or not. So what were you like as a kid? Were you trouble? Awesome. Were you a troublemaker? Troublemaker. Okay, this is this is a good question because I don't think I was a troublemaker. I think I was a five foot six black 12 year old who was already kind of stocky as well. Yeah. And I would speak my mind in in school, but it wasn't, it was never like trying to buck the teacher. It was always asking questions. I was so curious and I was always in these honor classes, honors classes and always in the highest level of reading and math and all of that. But I was always, I had like A, 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 all the way down, you know, took tests, all of this. But then when it got to behavior, it was like C, D, F. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of that truly is comes from like there are these studies that show that little girls of color are considered older faster mm-hmm. and are considered more mature faster and are con- considered more aggressive than white girls. And that's a bias that starts really young, like at six or something, because um, it's just it's a bias. And then you so anything that I would do or anything that someone would do. And I've seen this happen over and over again, um, kind of, you know, uh, piles on to that. But I was also like really into like different businesses, like starting different businesses. So and you're I really always entrepreneurial. That. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I was too, but all they had were these goofy business books for kids that were like mm-hmm. odd jobs for kids, and it had like <laughs> clip art you could like go take to the like Kinkos. There wasn't even Kinkos, but like yeah. the grocery store, and like make a copy and blow up like the clip art babysitter thing or. <laughs> I'll I'll sell your knickknacks. Yeah. <laughs> like odd jobs. Where'd you grow up? <laughs> Sacramento. Oh, okay. That's how they talk. It's like knickknacks and patty way. <laughs> I don't know. No, no. I know it sounds like I don't call it soda pop. Quaint. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I just I guess I made my own. I had a really great imagination, like a really vivid imagination, and that came from not having much. To be honest, Do you like, have siblings. I have one brother, a younger brother, Alfred. He goes by Rook. He's a cool. He's a rapper in Dallas. Yeah, we are, we were, we're kind of similar in that way. Arlen and I talked about how from a young age we both had an entrepreneurial spirit. However, she didn't enter the world of venture capital until she was in her 30s. So I wondered, what did she want to be when she was in high school? High school was pretty rough for me. I still was doing well in, in class. Like I was always top of my class. I was voted most likely, likely to succeed at one point uh, in earlier high school. But I had it like, it was tough. I We moved many, many times when I was younger. We never had money. We were always um, struggling. And then my senior year, I was not only dealing with just depression in general, where, where I was um, diagnosed with, with very severe depression, but I was, we, we didn't have a home. So we were living out of a motel, out of one room, my mom and my brother and I, my senior year. And we had to, like, move to another state for a minute and then came back because there was a fight in the hallway when I was being registered for school. So I thought maybe that wasn't the place for me. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so there was a lot. So I wasn't, I wasn't in that time, I'm thinking back to, like, being 11th, 12th grade. I was not thinking about, oh, let me go and go to college and I'll do this and I'll be that and I'll do this. I just thought I have to get through the next few days. Did you think, get me out of here? Like, as soon as I can get out of here, I'm going to get out of here? Yeah. Yeah. Out of school, out of, out of, and I love Dallas, but out of Dallas, just because when you're somewhere for so long, you just want to be somewhere else. Yeah. I always knew, though, that I would be in California. Yeah. That was one, that was that one guiding thing was I need to be in California. Tell me about your first jobs. Like, where did you start? We'll get into venture capital later. Okay. Where did I start? My first job, I was 15. I worked at Pudge Brothers Pizza in Dallas, Texas. I was, uh, I started as a cashier and then I became a pizza maker like within two days because they didn't have anybody else working there. And I did everything but deliver the pizzas. I became like everything for that store. And then I worked, and this is, you know, I was going to school and I worked at, uh, I was an usher for um, concerts, including like Stone Temple Pilot concerts and like, isn't that Like, because I worked at our local amphitheater amphitheater and then at the arena and so I would do like hockey games and then I would do uh different concerts 
One of Arlen's first jobs was as a concert usher at her local amphitheater, which sparked her love for music. I asked her how she shifted from ushering into being a full-time music professional. My very first concert, I was 13 years old, and I saw Janet Jackson in the front row through a series of wonderful events, and that I was not expecting that. And I it changed my life. And it actually, honestly, it helped me um, get out of the religion because I found a new one, to, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gave me confidence and, and changed my life. And I just, whatever that feeling was, looking back at that audience that night, I knew that I needed to be around that energy as much as possible. So mm-hmm. I, I did set out. I should say, yeah, I did set out to, I knew at 15, see, I kind of lied a little bit early when I said I didn't have any direction, because I definitely did. Mm -hmm. I knew at 15 that I wanted to be a tour manager, and I met Janet's tour manager, and I found my way to him, and we we, uh, met at one of his shows for another band, and I sat backstage for a couple of hours, and all this crazy stuff happened. Uh, He's he's around, Marty. Hey, Marty. Marty Hom, I've known him for... God, 20 years plus. He brought me back as a 15-year-old girl he met on AOL. I know that sounds really bad when I said out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Age, sex, location? Exactly. But now he was cool and he put me back there. And I remember sitting there and I was just like by myself and I was looking around. And like they couldn't find the drummer. The band was, I guess I I don't think this is going to hurt anything. It was the band Boston. Oh, yeah. And he was their tour manager, and they couldn't find the drummer. And they were, like, thinking that he was in another city or something. And then they talked about, like, the, the, somebody's parrot was lost as well, so they wondered if the parrot was with the drummer. And all this crazy stuff happened. And then the magic happened of, the, of going on, you know, to the stage and that feeling that I still get excited by, walking with the artist to the stage. And at the end of it, he said, you sure you still you want to do this, kid? And I said, every day of my life. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is it. So uh, that did send me on a on a path. So what does a tour manager do for our listeners who don't know? Tour manager. So I've been a production coordinator, a road manager, and a tour manager for, for different, depending on who the artist is. A tour manager. So we can use Janine as an example. She's an artist on Atlantic Records. So for her, I mean, it was a drummer, a keyboardist, a driver, me and her, and a sprinter across the country for two months. And with that, with that size tour, you do everything but perform, really. It's, you just have to get it together and like anticipate any sort of issue. And I think at the end of the day, tour managers, good tour managers, are, are hired for for what could go wrong, mm-hmm. not for... Keep you know, them alive. Yeah. <laughs> you, so I started with the Norwegian pop, uh, pop punk band, and that was a great way to start. What the, were they called? Golden Boy. Okay, they're I've in, heard of that. They're in Bergen. Um, good friends of mine. And they. I started when I was like 21 with them, and we went on the road two summers in a row, and this uh, van that... <laughs> and it was like five of them and one of me, and they discovered cheap beer for the first time <laughs> and the heat of the Texas suns. So they were always topless and I was always grabbing them from t- atop something, you know, some the top of the van or atop of a building. And I was always reminding them that in America, the sight of me with them in the South can be jarring to certain people, including police officers, and that we might not want to bring as much attention to ourselves as they would be while drunk and 
topless on the top of a van, so maybe we should dial that down. So that sort of thing um, uh, trained me for everything else. That I can, you can throw anything at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah I bet. Anyone yeah. who's worked with talent and, mm-hmm. I mean, especially in music, I, you know, I had an assistant who it was her dream to when she after a couple of years she was like I want to be in the music industry and everyone around me was like oh man like <laughs> she, she's that's it's like the toughest there's yeah. so many egos and personalities and yeah. a lot to well, navigate but can I can I'm I sure be, it can also be really fun can I be super like can I turn the tables a little bit yeah do you think that you because I've thought about this for myself now that I have a team and people that are working for me do you think that you're demanding I think I am, but I don't. Mm. I don't really tell everybody what they need. You know, it's like you don't micromanage. I try not to. There's yeah. times where I do, mm-hmm. but from a larger team perspective, you know, I work closer with some people than with others. My assistant or mm-hmm. with our product designer, mm-hmm. keeping like what we're building, you know, technology wise on track. But for the most part, no. I'm like, oh, cool. That's kind of the same as backstage at wow. this point. Do you find that? Um, there's some things that are non-negotiable, though, when it comes to, like, your vision being executed or yeah. representing yeah. your name. And I feel like I have really good stewards mm-hmm. of that who mm-hmm. are actually more attuned to – I mean, I understand the general psychology of, of this girl because I've talked to her for 12 years and my mm-hmm. whole, whole career. Mm-hmm. Clothes, fashion's different, but it's still meeting her where she is and having a conversation. Yeah. But – I feel really confident with the the women who run the company with me who mm-hmm. make those decisions and also educate me on a lot of things that I don't know and a lot of things that we're all learning at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, what's relevant, what's appropriate, what's, you know, there's a lot of subtleties that we have to take into account being a company called Girl Boss. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of nuance to that. Mm-hmm. So you're... A tour manager, and now you're a venture capitalist. What had happened? Did you go to college? <laughs> I, went, I went, took the wrong bus. A crew call. <laughs> you took the bus to Silicon yeah. Valley, got off, yeah. and said, give like, me money. Where's my band? <laughs> <laughs> so, and you're called Backstage Capital, which I now understand yes. why it's called Backstage Capital. Yeah. Did you go to college? No. I went to a community college for a few credits. Um, didn't enjoy that either. Arlen went from working in the music industry to creating her own venture capital firm with no prior experience or contacts. Switching careers is never an easy task, and getting started in venture capital without prior connections is, I mean, I can't believe she did it. Arlen revealed how she found a way to break into venture capital against all odds. I broke in. I I invited myself in. I mean, honestly, it was just really several years of chipping away at the path to get there so it's it's a, it's not an easy packaged um, story what are some of the things it doesn't even have to be chronological but what are the some of the things that happened on your way to <laughs> even beginning your career as a venture capitalist what are the different ways that you tried to sneak backstage well I mean I I, I definitely reached out to every investor that I ever thought would be interested in what we're doing uh, or what I was doing at the time. And I definitely cold called them. What were you telling them that you were doing? I said I was, it had many, you know, iterations, but that's pretty, the core of it has been the same. It's like we're, I, I think that a lot of investors that have a ton of money right now are missing 
a lot of people because they don't have that right access to them. Mm-hmm. And just like those people may not have the access to the country club, even more importantly, the investors don't have access to the barbecue. Mm-hmm. And I have access to the barbecue and you're missing out by by ignoring them. And I was telling them this in 2012 through 15, where I was looking into the future of what today is like. And I was saying to them, you're, you could get ahead of this because it's going to happen with or without you. Mm -hmm. And you could get ahead of it by being a call that founders of color and women make Mm -hmm. and LGBT founders make as opposed to something that's like untouchable and you have to know someone to know them. And that if they didn't want to do the, the footwork of that, which I could understand, they would have me as a scout. And I said all of that not knowing that in Silicon Valley there are scout programs. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I don't, they're pretty new, aren't they? No, they're, they've been around. Oh, really? That's what, Sam, what kick-started Sam Altman's career, Cali okay. uh, all these people. Okay. Um, but they were just very, like, low-key. Yeah. So did you become a scout? No. I created my own program was what I was saying. Like, I, I taught myself at home. I then... Went around to every investor I could find and said, let me, and I wasn't using the word scout, but I was saying that. Let me look for companies for you. Let me supply the deal flow. You have the money. You have a lot of it. And you're missing out on what could be interesting returns and discounted companies. So was that like a syndicate? Was it, did they, did you have LPs? Did you have people invest in your own fund? Yeah, so I set up a fund. Okay. I got a lawyer who was who would work with me before I, you know, raised. So that was really helpful. I have to give that credit. And then I set up a fund and I tried for like two years to get people to invest in it and nobody would. And then finally in the fall of 2015, I got my first investor who was a woman. Who is it? Susan Kimberlin. She was at Salesforce. Oh, cool. And then she introduced, so she made that, you know, that leap of faith as an angel investor into the fund. And then she introduced me to Jocelyn Goldfein, at, uh, uh, who's, who used to be a lead um, engineer at Facebook, now is a, a VC. Uh, she look her up, too, because she's writing checks that are significant, but they're uh, enterprise SaaS checks. But the f- well, however many people that are listening... What should... does enterprise need, mean for the people who are listening? Um, it just means that you're selling um, to companies, like your company is selling to other companies, and you buy, and you, it wouldn't be like an individual buying it, and usually it's um, software, that, so software as a service is SaaS, mm-hmm. so you would sell, like you think about something like Salesforce or... Um, even Slack. Slack, yeah. Slack is, is that, even though it has a really great... Um, it feels like B2C in a yeah. way because it's it's so welcoming. They did a really good job of that. But yeah, they're your boss or your comp- you are deciding on these products for your company. Yeah. And she, so anyway, so they so she invested as well and then Lars Rasmussen invested um, with his uh, partner Elamita and Lars created Google Maps. And not then, bad. And then we just I just kept going. I just kept going. I kept getting no's. Still after that, I got no's. Then Stuart Butterfield, speaking of Slack, he got in touch with me on Twitter. Yeah. And he said, hey, I heard about you. Can I invest in your fund? And I'm like, well, let me check my calendar. How sir. long ago was that? That was uh, probably either December of 2015 or top of the year, 2016. We have so much more with Arlen coming up. But first, let's talk about ShipStation. And I, by ShipStation, I mean ShipStation. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> the ship to the station. So we use Ship Station for all of our shipping needs here at Girl Boss. We sell a little bit of merch here and there and ship all kinds of other things, gifts sometimes, books sometimes. Maggie, tell us how easy it is to use Ship Station. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's saved so much time on my part. Um, I log in, literally hit a button to update the store, um, get all of the requests or the orders, and then literally can print them right there and then uh, take them to UPS, FedEx, or USPS, and literally just drop them off with the prepaid labels all ready to go. Mm, bye. <laughs> so if you're using Shopify, Squarespace, Etsy, or over 75 other popular selling channels, you can integrate them with ShipStation to bring all of your orders into one simple interface. And it integrates with USPS, UPS, FedEx, and uh, everything you can imagine. And we have this great deal. Right now, you can try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free. That is two months free. If you use our promo code GIRLBOSS, don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Girl Boss. That's S H I P S T A T I O N dot com. Enter Girl Boss. Ship Station. Make, Make ship, ship happen. happen. We're going to continue with Arlen in just a minute, but before we do, I also want to talk just a little bit about Quip. Quip. Mm. If you don't know what Quip is, it's a little toothbrush. <laughs> it's a little toothbrush that vibrates and cleans your teeth. It's an electric toothbrush, and it's a fraction of the cost of the bulkier brushes and packs, and has just the right amount of vibrations to clean your teeth. And it has a built-in timer, so you don't brush your teeth for too long, mm -hmm. because, I don't know, who wants sore gums? And they deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule, so you can subscribe, and instead of forgetting and letting your electric toothbrush head get all gross, which I've done before, a new one will come every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide, so no matter where you're listening mm -hmm. to Girl Boss Radio, you can get your Quip electric toothbrush anywhere you want it. And plus, Quip is backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists, and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. It's on Oprah's O-List, was named one of Time's Best Inventions, and it's the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash girlboss right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash girlboss. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash girlboss. 